0: I have uh, disappointed a lot of people in my life. Um, the better you know me, the more that you know me, the more often you spend time with me, the more likely it is that I've disappointed you. You don't need to say amen. We, we know about this. I have failed to keep promises. I've forgotten to do things I said I would do. I've hurt people on purpose. I've hurt people by accident. I have Disappointed. A lot of people. People have been very disappointed in me in different times of my life. My parents. They. That's what I, they told me all the time. You are a disappointment. No, they didn't. They didn't really tell me. That. Um, they were very nice to me. Um, the most common reason that I would disappoint people is because I'm simply a sinner and selfish and prideful and insensitive sometimes and all that kind of stuff. But there are there are always other reasons for it um, uh, besides that, or there can be other reasons for it besides that. But the most Common reasons: is I'm just not good. I need God for that. And when I don't, so do the spirit, instead so do the flesh, I disappoint people. Um, I am not all good, and I am not always good like God is. He is the only one that is all good and always good. But here's the thing. I want you to think about this. This is important for what we're going to get into today. Even if I was all good and always good, same thing. I would still likely disappoint people because there are other reasons why I disappoint people besides just not being good. Sometimes I will sometimes misjudge the amount of time I have or the amount of energy or the amount of money or something like that that I will have at a specific time. So I'll say, hey, I'll do this thing thinking that I'm going to have enough time, energy, money, whatever to do that thing for that person. And it ends up being that I can't. So I end up not coming through for them not because of any sin or lack of goodness on my part, but because I ran out of time or energy or money or some other thing I needed to make something happen for you or for the person who I've told I would do something. Now the fact is, is that I'm not all powerful like God is. He's all powerful. I cannot do everything I want to do or even things I think I can do, but he can. Because he's all powerful. But here's the thing, even if I was all good, and all-powerful, I still would probably disappoint people sometimes, because there's another reason why I disappoint people. There are times where I promise something, and I have the time and the resources, the money, the energy to follow through, but something happens. Something outside of my control happens. Sometimes things happen that I couldn't have predicted. When I was uh, a young kid, Late 80s, this was like 88, 89, by the time that song that we sang was was done, I think that was 88. We had tickets. My dad told me he was gonna take me to the Rams 49ers game. Now, we lived in California at the time. I was a Rams fan, had Rams shoelaces. I loved the Rams. Um, I had been to one game before. It was awesome, amazing stuff. I don't know about awesome, it was pretty cool. They chanted a cuss word and I was like, what? Because I was a little kid. Great, anyway. We were going to go to this game, and the Rams 49ers, at that time in the late 80s, Rams and 49ers in the NFC, it was like this battle. Um, 49ers, of course, were the better team, um, but that's not important. We thought we might win, and so we were going to go to this game. We had tickets. I was so excited. My dad told me we were going to go to this game, and this good friend of ours, a woman in the church, uh, in the church body, was giving us tickets to the game, so she was going to bring them by. My dad was going to grab. We were going to go to the game. Unfortunately, The woman who had the tickets put them on the counter in her kitchen and she put them next to the mail. Those of you who are young, mail, that's like letters, paper, we take them out. Stamps, like you probably don't even know, you probably never sent, anyway. We used to send mail all the time. So she put it next to her mail and then she took her mail out to the mailbox and she scooped up those tickets to the Rams 49ers game and she put them in the mailbox. So the mail person, was in our seats for that game. Probably thought, she is so nice. What a wonderful lady this is. Late Christmas present. And off the mail person assumedly goes to the game, and we didn't get to go. And I was so bummed out. But my dad didn't do anything wrong. He could not have predicted that the person giving us tickets would put them in the mailbox couldn't have predicted that. So it wasn't an issue of his ability to do it. All he had to do was pick up the tickets from her. It wasn't an issue of his goodness. It was very good of him to want to take me. It was an issue of his ability to predict the future and know that that was going to happen so that he wouldn't say we were going to go. Things like that happen. And because of them, people get disappointed. I cannot predict those things because I'm not all-knowing. But God is all-knowing. Now, this is what's important as I've laid this out. Something that you have to understand is that to be able to depend on God, to have faith and trust and hope in God, he has to be all three of the things I just mentioned. He has to be all three of them. He has to be all good so we can trust him to do good to us, right? If he's just mostly good, it might not work out. He has to be all good for us to completely 100% trust that he'll be good to us. He has to be all powerful so that nothing can stop him from being able to do good for us. But God also has to be all knowing so that nothing can happen that he did not already foresee and plan for. All of those things have to be true. If any of those are missing, we could not have perfect trust in God. You know that? If any of those things was not true about God, you could not have perfect trust in God. Nobody in this room, I hope, or watching online has perfect trust in any person, okay? Whether that's the spouse or the kids or the friends or the politicians, gosh, I hope not. Um, Whoever people trust in, you know. You can't have perfect trust in any person, but you can have perfect trust in God. And the reason you can have perfect trust in God and not in any person is because God is the only one that is all good, all powerful, and all-knowing. Okay? It's also omnipresent, but for this, in terms of trusting his promises, these are the ones that are important. God has to be all-knowing or else whatever plans he made, no matter how much power he had, they could be thwarted because things would happen that he couldn't fix. And if we can't trust him fully, our trust goes from 100% to something less, and something less is like nothing at all because either we can trust him or we can't. Right? Many things could happen to keep us from the good that God promised if he wasn't all three of these things, all good, all powerful, and all knowing. But we can. We can trust the Lord. And he tells us to do so. Okay? Okay? I went to a website. You can go to a website. I just found all the verses on trusting God. I mean, I've got a thousand, of them, but I'm going to read you a few of them, okay? Here's some of them. And by the way, they're going to be up here. If you need a Bible, there are Bibles in front of you. If you're a guest today with us, uh, they're either on the seats if you're in the front or they're in front of you. Take one of those home with you if you would like. If you don't have a Bible at home, if you haven't been reading your Bible and you think a new one will help you read it, we want you to read the Bible. So take that home. That's our gift to you. You don't have to tell us that you took it. You don't have to leave anything in the offering. Nothing. Just take the Bible. It's yours. We want you to have the Word of God. So, Here's one, trust, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Now, how can we trust in the Lord with all our heart? In order to do that, we have to believe that he's able, right? He's got to be able to do the things that he says. If we're going to trust him, we have to trust that he is able. And in order to be able, as we said, he has to be all-knowing, powerful, This is some good handwriting and uh, good, okay? In order for us to have all our heart, or else it's gonna be some piece of our heart that can't fully trust him, but he tells us to trust with all our heart. And he says not to lean on our own understanding. Why? Because you can't understand what it's like to be all good, all powerful, and all knowing. You can't understand that, and you can't understand the math that God's doing about the world. All you can do is no matter what you see, you can trust him because he's all good, and he's all powerful and all knowing, so he can effectuate, he can do the good that he wants to do. So in all your ways, acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. How does he direct your path? Because he's all knowing, so he can direct your path. Here's another one, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same, how? Because he's all knowing, all good, all powerful. Nothing can change him, nothing can move him. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Now, how are you gonna have perfect peace? As I said, to have perfect peace God has to be perfect in the three things that I mentioned. And then we can trust in him and have our mind stayed on him. That's the way it works. And of course, we have this from what we've been studying. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Now, that's some good stuff, some very good stuff. But there's more to that passage And this is what's important because this is what drives us from what we're talking about into the Romans 9 stuff. Again, and we know that all things work together, all things work together for good to those who love God, for those who are the called according to his purpose. Now, it goes directly from that to the reason why we can trust it. Okay? Do you see this? For, that means because, oops, that's not a B. Oh, that's terrible. Because... Or therefore, okay, because of this up here, we can trust him. Whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, okay? Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What you have to see is that this entire passage, this entire thing depends on God being all good, all powerful, and all knowing. And what does he say? He gives us the order of the thing. What what does it say? It says that those who he foreknew. That means that God knew everything about you and everything about what you would do because he knew that he could he when he created you he predestined and then those he predestined he called and those who he called he also justified and those he justified he also glorified you can watch that progression the only way that progression can happen is if god is all knowing it's the only way that it can happen You can see that his foreknowledge, the fact that he knows everything, past, present, and future, are essential. They're essential to our ability to trust in him to work all things together for good. Because he can say he's gonna work all things together for good, just like you have probably said to your kids or to your spouse, hey, it's all gonna work out. It's all good. Don't worry, be happy. I'm gonna take care of it. But when you say that, You're just saying, if everything goes the way that I hope it goes, and I'm right about all my predictions, which are not always great, then everything will probably be good, assuming that one of a million things doesn't happen. When God says, it's all going to be good, we actually believe he means it. And the only way we could believe him 100% is if he already knew it was going to be good. And so we run into an issue. Christians Uh, They don't seem to have an issue with God being all-powerful. I really don't run into that. I don't see a lot of people who are Christians, Christ followers, who are like, God is not all-powerful. No, they generally agree with that. Or that God is all good. Christians generally believe that. One of the uh, objections to God's goodness is the idea, well, if he's all-powerful and he's all-good, then why do bad things happen? We're going to get some stuff here that actually answers that question. But for Christ followers, they don't have that. They believe that God is all good and they believe that God is all powerful. The issue of God being all knowing trips people up. It trips people up. I, I, don't, I don't usually run into anybody who says, God is not all knowing. Instead, what happens is that people get sort of sideways on what all knowing means. What does it mean to say God is all knowing? You know, what is possible for God to know? What does he know? I generally go with the standard definition of all knowing which means that God knows everything because words mean stuff. It seems very obvious from Scripture and consistent with the promises that he makes that he knows everything, including all things in time that will ever happen. If God did not know everything, past, present, and future, he would not make the promises he does about the future and then guarantee guarantee them. Guarantee that he will work all things together for good for those who love him. He wouldn't do that unless he knew everything, past, present, and future. But some people, and follow me here, they don't like the implications of God being all-knowing. Because if God is all-knowing, he knows everything they will ever do before they do it. And of course, that word before is what gets them sort of tripped up. Because they think if God knows everything they will ever do before they do it, then does that mean they don't really have any choice about what they do? So there are some theologians who talk about God's knowledge as though it's just a very strong ability to predict the future. But that can't be right. That can't be right. I have a very strong ability to make a 10-foot putt in disc golf, but I've missed them. A strong ability is not a guarantee. God can't make promises and then say, I've got a strong ability to predict the future, so it's probably gonna happen. He has to actually know. He has to actually know. God has to have a perfect ability to predict the future. And the only way you can have a perfect ability to predict the future is to know the future, to already know it. It's the same thing to say, I, have per- I, can, I can predict perfectly the future. says, I already know the future. So God already knows the future. Knowledge is not pr- prediction. Knowledge is knowledge. God has knowledge. Now, because of the concern over what all knowing implies about our choices, we have a split among brothers and sisters in Christ. That split is most easily seen in those who hold the Arminian view and the people who hold a Calvinist or a Reformed view. Now, without getting overly into it at this very moment, the controversy plays out mostly in the question of how we receive salvation from God through Jesus Christ. That's where the question gets sort of played out. How does it work? Now, you can listen or watch last week's sermon to understand more about this issue and soteriology or the study of salvation. But the gist is this. The gist of the, of the real problem for people where they get kind of worked up, is this question, this question. Does God choose us and we choose Jesus Christ? Or does God choose us and bring us into salvation through Jesus Christ without our choice, right? So in both cases, we know that God chooses us, we know that God calls us, we know all that stuff. You can't read Romans eight without knowing that God has, has chosen us. The question between the Arminian and the Calvinist is, well, but did God choose everyone and some of them chose him back? Or did God choose only those who would be saved and actually make them saved without their choice? He just pulled them into the kingdom. Which one of these things happened? Now, this is interesting. It, is, uh, it has all the benefits of a great conversation over coffee. It does not have a lot of benefits for the average believer on a practical day who's trying to stop sinning and raise a family or trying to, trying to grow closer to God in all kinds of ways to decide whether or not God chose me and I chose him or God chose me and forced me to be with him. That's not a thing that, that really comes up for a lot of people, but there is There is a sort of a battle, if you want to call it. That's really not where brothers and sisters, whether you're Calvinist, Arminian, or you just believe what's actually true like me, um, which is different than either one of them. Uh, you were all brothers and sisters in Christ. We all believe that salvation is by grace through faith. We all believe Jesus Christ was born a virgin, died on the third day, rose, or died and rose again on the third day. All the things that are important, that the only way to come to Jesus is by confessing with the mouth of the Lord Jesus and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead and so on, all those things. But then we have this little thing over here. We have this little thing, and it's all about what does God know and how does that work? And I do think the issue is important, although I don't think the process of salvation is that important to you on a daily basis and as you kind of walk through life? I do think it's important because it helps us to understand our great and mighty and holy and awesome God more fully. And so that's why we go through it. Why? Because it's in the scripture, so God wants us to know about it. But it is hard to understand. And if you find yourself having a hard time understanding as we sort of walk through this, do not feel bad. It is hard for most people to understand. I don't know if I know anybody who would stop hard for them to understand. So we've been studying Romans 9. Walking back through chapter 8 and then walking back through from chapter 1 through chapter 8 up into chapter 9 so that we can understand in context this letter that the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write to the Romans. We want context for chapter 9 because it's complicated. So, last week we got chapter 9, and I'm just going to have to run through real quick what we did last week so we can get into what we're doing this week. Uh, we got to verse 19, and we had read before that, at the beginning of chapter 9, about Paul's love for and sorrow for the Israelites, the Jewish people, his people, his relatives, because not all of them were saved, right? And there was a sort of breakdown for the Roman church that the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write, to help them to understand this issue with Jewish people who, who prior to understanding this had believed that because they were Jewish, because they were in the seed of Abraham, the line of Abraham, that meant that they were saved. And Paul's laying this out. It is not all Israel who are Israel. Not all who are Israel are saved. In fact, the ones who are the true children or the, the, the children of promise, the children of the seed are actually those who have the faith of Abraham not the genetics. It's not the genetics of Abraham that save you. It's following him in faith because he believed God, and we are the children of the promise who also believe God. God worked through the people of the promise, but he, he walks through it. Right, he says, Look, you can see that not all who are of Abraham were saved because it was Isaac, not Ishmael, or the other boys that, that Abraham had actually later in life. It wasn't them, it was Isaac. So some of Abraham's seed were cut off there. They weren't the ones who were the children of the promise. And then he goes back there he goes, okay, it was not Esau the older, but Jacob the younger. And we get this thing about Jacob, I've loved Esau, I've hated. And people go, oh my goodness, that's, that sounds rough. Because this was this choice that God had made for which one of them would, be the, would, would, would follow in the line of the promise. And God chose Jacob and not Esau. Not because Jacob was good and Esau was bad. They hadn't done anything. They were never born yet. But because God's election, his choice for Israel was to come through that line. So that being simply of Abraham was not, even back then, was not enough to save you. And of course, as he's walking through that, the Jewish people, the Israelites are hearing that like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, definitely not Esau, because they came through Jacob. Definitely not him. So they're all good. He's got them with them, right? You know, not of Ishmael, not Ishmaelites, but those of Isaac. Yep, yep, that's us right? Good choice by God. And then it's not of Esau, but of Jacob. They're like, yep, once again, God is hitting, batting a thousand because I'm that person. But then the point that he makes is, and not everybody who's children of Jacob, because some believe and some don't. And those who don't believe are lost because of their unbelief. And those who do believe are in, including not just Jews, but Gentiles also who can believe, to which the Gentiles are like, "Mm mm-hmm. So in chapter 10, he's going to have 10 and 11, he's going to have to kind of slap them back a little bit. But we'll get there. We'll get there. So that's going on, right? And then we get to verse 18, which says, Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. This is where he just talked about Pharaoh, right? Talked about in order to show God's power in Pharaoh and make a great name for the Lord in the earth, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Now we also look at the fact that Pharaoh also hardens his own heart. Okay. Pharaoh was not a good man and he was hardened as for God's plan, but also because he deserved it. Right. And so God hardens him and people go, whoa, 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 whoa. whoa. He has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills, he hardens. So it's God's will that causes people to either have mercy or to be hardened. Whoa, 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 whoa. And then we get to chapter, or I'm sorry, to verse 19, because the answer is he does both of those things. He has mercy on whom he wills, and on whom he wills he hardens. You know how I know he does it? Because it's in the Bible, and we just read it. That's how I know. It's very easy. But before you get sideways, let's look at verse 19 in context, where we stopped last week. Should be this next one. There it is. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? Who has resisted God's will? Well, I can give you a simple answer. Nobody. No one can resist God's will. God is all-powerful, as we discussed. So this comes down to the crux of the difference in understanding between some Christians, between the Armenians and the Calvinists and so on. What choice do we have if God's will is running the show? Do we have a choice at all? It does seem kind of like we're in a quandary, but let me assure you, we are not. And I'm gonna walk you through it. God's will is far more complicated than your will. Go figure, right? What do we, what do we read? We read in Isaiah 55, 9. For as the heavens are higher than the earth. Okay, heavens up here, earth way down here somewhere, okay? There's a big space here. Heavens are higher than the earth. So are my thoughts My ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So God's thoughts are way higher than your thoughts, and God's will is way higher than your will, way more complicated than your will. Your will is not nearly as complicated, and yet, your will is complicated, and let me show you how. If I will to eat, as I often do, I'm going to have to work to make the money to pay for meals. That's a reality because I'm not willing to steal and I ought not to rely on others to feed me when I'm capable of working. If you're a young man, please take note of what I just said. I may not desire to do the work, but it is impossible for me to have the thing that I will to have to eat without doing the thing I do not desire to do to work. Now, I don't mind working, but You can imagine there's some jobs you don't want to do, right? Now, the reason I bring this up is because God's will is at least that complicated. God can will that as many people as possible will be saved. He can will that as many people as are possible will be saved. But it may be impossible for him to create the kind of creatures, kind of people he created, the men and women he created, and have all of them be saved. If you want to make real people, what you understand to be a real person, that person has to have the ability to make choices. If you want to experience love, that person is going to have, the, have to have the ability to not love you. If your husband or wife is, in a, is a robot, if any of you have married robots, someday people will probably do that. Oh, we've got a no signal problem. Um, you're, then you are not really loved, right? Because they don't really have a choice about it. You are only loved if the person both has the choice to love you and to not love you. Here we go. There we go. Are we back? It'll figure itself out. Stop looking at that. You have to have the choice to be a, a real boy, right, like Pinocchio. You don't be a real boy, real girl, real man, real woman. You have to have some choices, now, the question is, if God wills to have people so that those people can experience his joy and his love, right? his peace and eternal life and eternity with him, and he wants to create people, he has to create people that can actually experience those things. And if he wants to create people that can actually experience those things, then he's going to create people that could possibly not experience those things because they chose not to. God cannot do the logically impossible because the logically impossible is not a thing. Just so you understand, uh, people will say things like, well, can God create a square circle? Can God create a rock so big that he couldn't move it? This is like, you know, the kind of stuff that college freshmen get into, right? out there, you know, and then they ask these questions. Here's the thing. I don't know anything about that. That's, I've seen movies. The fact is, is that those aren't things to put nonsense words together and then say, can God do that? C.S. Lewis talks about this. If you ever want to read The Problem of Pain, he walks through this, but that's just nonsense. God can't do the logically impossible. God can do all things that are possible, but square circles aren't possible because that's not a thing. There's no such thing as a square circle, and there's no such thing, for all that we understand and know, there is no such thing as a person who has a choice and doesn't have a choice. A person who has a choice and doesn't have a choice, that's not a thing, right? They either have a choice, in which case they can choose, or they don't have a choice. To say that God could have made people who always choose good is to say that God made people without a choice, So if he wanted you, Christ follower, to be with him for eternity, it demands logically that there are those who will choose not to be with him for eternity. That's a problem because God didn't do anything wrong. He is all good. He's all good. So we look at Genesis, first chapter of the Bible. It says, what does it say? God saw everything That he had made, and indeed, it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. It was real good. He made everything really, really, very, very good. But he created people with the ability to make choices. And he knew when he did so that they would make wrong choices. And then we see chapters 1 and 2 of the very letter we are studying to the Romans. And the Jews and the Gentiles are both told they are without excuse. And what does that mean? It means they actually made choices that they are responsible for because they were their choices. They made moral decisions that they were responsible for and they have no excuse. They knew to do right. They chose not to. They suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. says, Right? All the unrighteousness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness suppressing the truth in our righteousness and choosing to do evil. Now, God might desire that everyone would be saved, but he does not will that everyone be saved. I may not desire to go to work. I may not desire it, but if I will to eat, I I will to go to work. Those two things go together. I might desire to not go to work, but I actually will to go to work because I'm willing. I want my will is to eat. Right? Second Peter three nine. This is out of the ISV. I like the way that it it. uh interprets this word, I feel it's better than the NKJV uh, in terms of English. It says, the Lord is not slow about his promises. Some people understand slowness, but is being patient with you. He does not want anyone to perish, but everyone to find room for repentance. So this is talking about, hey, why is God so slow to come back and judge the world? And in, in, the, in the letter that Peter's doing here, he's saying, well, listen, he's being patient with you because he actually wants everyone. He actually wants everyone to be saved, to come to repentance. It's not what he wants for them to perish. But then the question is, but does he will for them to perish? And the answer is yes. He wills it by the nature of willing that you, if you're a Christ follower, would be with him. It means you have to exist in order for you to exist. These other people also had to have the opportunity to exist, like you were probably born from someone, right? You you had a mom and a dad, Every, all of you did. I know that they're saying different things now, dads and moms. and that, that you, you all came from mom and dad or some reasonable facsimile thereof. And in order for you to exist, they had to exist. In order for them to exist, they, the, their parents had to exist and so on. These people had to exist. In order for that to happen, some of those people would reject God. And therefore, he has willed, he has willed that that is allowed to happen so that you, so that he could will that you would be with him. That may be difficult. That may be difficult. But that's the reality. That's the reality. And we see it all the time. We see it all the time. We do it all the time. It is logically impossible to will to do something and to be able to have the things that we don't like about what must happen logically not happen. You can't do that that way, right? As I said, a person may will to have food but not want to work, but that person is, it's not gonna happen for them. Willing to have food means willing to work for it. Willing to have you go to heaven means willing that some people will go to hell. That's a reality. If God wants to create men and women who will have eternal life and those people have a choice, he wills to make some who will repent and some who will perish even though he doesn't desire that it's simply logically impossible that people saved and not to have people also some people also reject salvation but it's even more difficult for our magnificent God because there was another logical impossibility in giving men and women the ability to choose between right and wrong and, ha- and not having just all of them choose wrong and go to hell because they all did choose wrong. Every single person that God has given the choice has chosen wrong. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's a reality, so he had to do something else. He had to accomplish something else for his will that we would be saved to be able to happen. He had to come to earth, become a man, and die an excruciating death. He had to die on the cross for our sins. Do you think that that was something that was pleasurable for God to send his only begotten son to die? Do you think that Jesus enjoyed the passion, the death that he had on the cross? He did not. But his will was that you could be saved. So his will that was, was that he had to go to the cross. Not his want, but his Will. Hebrews 12, one through two. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, you tell me something. Does enduring and despising sound like something that you want? No. So, for God's will to happen, not all of His, not all the things that He would find pleasurable can happen. That's a reality, just like it is for you. And so, and the reason I'm telling you this is because some people, they, they go into this like Calvinist Arminian thing and they look at this, the Calvinist side. And some Calvinists talk like this, as if God sat, flipped coins, and decided, Austin, yep, buff, yee, tails. You want Austin? That's not what he did. That's not how it works. Okay, God's choice is different than that and more complicated than that. It's more complicated than that. There's a clear example where God's will determined that he would have to do that which he otherwise would not want to do. Why would he want to come down to earth in the first place? And certainly, why would he want to die? Listen to Luke twenty-two forty-one 41 through 42. And he was withdrawn from them. This is Jesus, about a stone's throw. This is the night he was betrayed. And he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The son is always submitting to the will of the father, understanding that what does he want in that moment? Is there another way? Is there another way for your will to be accomplished? And he knows there's not because he's God. Jesus is God. So he understands that in order for the will of the Father to stand, which is that you would be saved, he had to go to the cross, despising the shame, enduring the cross. So God, too, has to suffer because of his will that is good that you be saved. And he suffered more than any of us. Ezekiel 33, 11. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Does that sound like a God who's like, Austin, good, buff? Yes. You know, zap him. No. Which is what some people, some, some Calvinistic people talk like that. And more often, Armenian people talk as if Calvinist people talk like that as if God has pleasure in the death of the wicked. But what does he say? But that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? What does God want? What does he he desire? What would be his pleasure? That you would all be saved. He didn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. You have to understand God's heart. You have to understand God's heart. It's his will that as many as possible be saved. That seems very clear. It's a reality that not everyone will, but that's not his desire. That does not appear from anything we see in Scripture to be his desire. He has no pleasure in those who are wicked. He has pleasure in those who repent, obviously. The wicked, unrepentant sinner who does not call on the name of Jesus Christ for salvation cannot be with a holy God and do not want to be with a holy God, and therefore it is illogically impossible that they should be with him. It's not that God doesn't want them. It's that they don't want him. The issue that people struggle with is the fact that God has always known that that would be the case for them. But God has paid a price higher than any of us could ever pay for his will that the saints, that the elect, could be saved. Listen to this quote from C.S. Lewis in The Problem of Fame. In the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell, to the idea that God created some people who will go to hell, is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all costs to give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help? But he has done so on Calvary. To forgive them, they will not be forgiven. To leave them alone, alas, I'm afraid that is what he does. God has done everything for us to provide us with salvation, with forgiveness for our sins. He has shown his love for us in such an amazing and wonderful way. That God, here we go, Romans 5 But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were Still sinners, Christ died for us. What more love do you want that while you were an absolute disaster, that is when he went to the cross for you? And you want to question his goodness. This is the issue that's coming up that that Paul is dealing with, right? God has done everything on his part to save us. We have to surrender our lives to his love and forgiveness and peace and mercy and give up the idea that we are our own God. We have to do all that. Once again, we get to the question in verse 19. You will say to them, then, why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? And the first answer given by the Holy Spirit inspiring Paul here is similar to what God says to Job when he asks these kinds of questions. But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? What do you know about it? Well, the thing formed... Say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? That word's going to be very important. Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? And we're thinking, but that sounds so, but he made some for honor and some for dishonor? Yes. Yes. He did. But you know his heart. What if God wanted to show his wrath? And to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, this is amazing, whom he called not of the Jews only, but also the Gentiles. Here's the thing. I said that the word made was going to be really important. Made, make, And, and here's why. It's important because of this. The questioner is really asking not, is it okay for God to to make his own choices? The questioner is asking, why did you make me? If in fact I'm going to hell, why did you make me at all? Which is really to go back to the beginning and say, what God is being accused of is creation itself. See, God foreknew everything that would ever happen before the foundation of the world. So by its very nature, that means that he foreknew that you would be saved if you're a Christ follower and that you would not be saved if you're not. He knew it before he said go. In the mind of God, if you will, every possible scenario for creation would have been available to him. He would have known every possible way that the universe could be created. Every one. And because he's all good, he actually created the best one. Why do we know that? Because he's good. He's all good. So the one he created is the best one. But the one he created still required that people who have choices will make wrong choices. I don't know how it works because I'm not God. But my guess is, is that the maximum number of people that could ever go to heaven will be in heaven. Of all the possibilities God could have created, It will have the most possible people and the least possible people who perish. That's my guess because he's good. But I don't get to tell him what to do. The bottom line is people are asking, why did you create me if you knew I was going to die? And the answer is because I also knew that your brother or your sister or your uncle or your aunt or your mom or your dad was gonna be saved and they were gonna be with me. And you have done your own sin you are dying for your own sin. You refuse to, do, to come to me. I died for you. I'm right here for you. You've rejected me. And so, the, don't, so don't come to me complaining that I made you when you have earned your own death. And I have provided everything I can for you to not have that happen. But he knew. And that's obvious. He has to. He's all knowing. He has to have known. This is not that complicated. We so overcomplicate this. When God said go, he knew, he foreknew. Just read Romans 8 at the end. It says, those he foreknew, he also predestined. Those who predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. That's, a, that's an order. He foreknew. So if I foreknow that Pastor Dave is going to receive Jesus Christ, then what happens? I foreknew it, so as soon as I said go, I predestined it because I knew it was going to happen, and then created the world. I said A, that means Z was going to happen, so I predestined him. And since he's predestined, of course, I've called him. And because I've called him and he's received the call, then he's been justified, and I will glorify him if I'm God. That's the order. He also foreknew some of people wouldn't. He foreknew that. And so people get into this idea of and we don't need get too far. It's 1129. But the idea that double predestination, that God made some people for hell and he made some people for heaven. And look, that's not as scary as it sounds. Yeah. Yeah, he did. Yeah. He created the world knowing that it would happen, that some people would reject him. It has, that does not affect your choice in any way that he knew what choice you would make. There is not a person that will go to hell, that will not go having earned the wages of sin. Not one. What does it say? Let's get there. Romans, that's not the right one. Come on, David. Get the right one. All right. Anyway, Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. The wages, what are wages? There's something you earn. Everybody earns death. Those who will come to Jesus Christ receive the free gift of salvation. We all earn death. He created us knowing that all of us would earn death. That's why He had to suffer. What are you asking Him to do? What do you want from Him more than what He's done? He died for us, He rose again. He's with us always, even to the end of the age. If you're saying, Well, why did He make me? I'm not a Christian. Hey, I got an easy solution for that. Become a Christ follower, and you don't have to worry about any of this. Those who are created for destruction, who he says he bears with them with much long suffering because they have to earn it themselves. You can go back to the, to the nation of Israel, they're in Egypt for 400 years. Why? Because the land of Canaan, which was vile had not brought their sin up to the point where he was ready for judgment yet. He is very patient. Why? Why does he delay his coming as Peter's talking about his book? Because he's patient, not desiring that any should perish. His heart is not for you to go to hell. His heart is for you to go to heaven. And so if you're hearing this, let the Holy Spirit speak to your heart because you don't have to die. You don't have to go to hell, but I promise you, you've earned it because you've rejected him because you are a sinner and the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Let's, Let's end this thing with this. If you're not a Christ follower, if you are not a Christ follower, if you have not followed Jesus for life, this is what it is. Romans 10, 9 through 10, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's it. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. All you need to do is make Jesus Lord of your life. Believe that God rose from the dead, that he raised Jesus from the dead. You're going to be saved. Now, there's a whole world that opens up after that including understanding things like what we talked about today. It's amazing, it's adventurous, it's not safe. Don't, don't come here thinking that you get money for it or something. Nope, you lose all that. Your time, your energy, your money, you know, all, that, all that's got, that's, we don't care about that anymore because we're following after Jesus. Because one of the things that he foreknew were the good works that he planned for you beforehand that you should walk in them. That's what you get when you accept Jesus. And I need you to understand something, that this doctrine, this teaching about the foreknowledge and predestination of God is essential if you want to believe the promises that God has made to you. If you want to have trust in him, you have to believe that he knows everything that will ever happen. Isaiah 26, one through three. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. God will appoint salvation for walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation which keeps the truth may enter in. And then it says this, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Why is this important? If you want to think about God's foreknowledge And knowing everything and you want it to have an impact in your life, here's how you think about it. God, you have promised good to me. You have promised you work all things together for good for those who love you, for those who are called according to your purpose. And you have foreknown, predestined, that I am one of those people and I can trust. I can be in perfect peace because my mind is stayed on you and because I know that you know Everything. I don't have to worry about whether you can keep your promises. One of his promises is the one I just read you. But if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's one of his promises. Another one is if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If you walked in here today or you're online and you're thinking to yourself, man, I've already blown it. Yep, all of us had. All of us had. And yet, I stand here, a wicked, sinful man who has been gloriously saved, not because of anything that I did, but because my trust is in Jesus, and he's my Lord. And I believe that God raised him from the dead. And I will be with him on the last day. I will live with him forever, and you can too. So if you need to get saved this morning, get saved. Don't wait another day, because God hasn't promised you another day. All that you have this morning in promise is that if you are not saved, he will save you. And if he saves you, he will justify you. He will glorify you. He will sanctify you. You will be seated in the heavenly places with him. All of that is for you. Trust God. If you've already trusted him for life, trust that his promises are true about your life. If you've never trusted him for life, trust him for life. That's what Romans 9 and every other chapter of the Bible is about. Believing in Jesus Christ and trusting God, not fearing. Fear nothing because you have God. If God is for us, who can be against us?